Blur or Oasis? I mean, it's not a debate, it's Blur. <laughs> blur. Uh, yeah. Welcome to episode 14 of the Dan and Joe Film Show. Time flies when you're having fun. I hope you're all well at home. Hope you're staying safe. As always, I'm joined by my gorgeous partner in crime, Mr. Joe Richards. Looking handsome, buddy. Thank you. I feel it today. I'm feeling good. I'm kind of wearing a nice blue striped shirt. Love the shirt. I know. I don't know why we always give fashion updates, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of feeling confident today. I'm feeling good. My hair is not too bad. The greys are there still, but otherwise not too bad. And you're looking lovely as well, Dan. You've been out for pizza today, though, haven't you? So go look good while eating Italian pizza. Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've got all the Bella Bellas coming at you. You need to be looking fresh, like some of them Italian boys off the street. You've got to be looking good to eat them pizza. Yeah, it is lovely. Really fresh, oven-baked pizza, nice and thin, nice and crispy, a bit like me. And yeah, lovely pizza. <laughs> yeah, really, really great fresh produce from a place where I live locally. And it's, it's a Saturday, and you know what? I think things are looking up. You know, we're going to keep optimistic. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. But you know, we're here to talk about movies and we're here to entertain you. So how have you been? I know, obviously, um, it feels like we, we've been doing this. Like, it just feels like kind of what it's always been like, this show, you know? It feels, yeah, it feels really weird. We're at that point now where we've done more shows over Zoom than we have actually in the studio, which is, which is strange. But yeah, I'm good. It's worth telling the listeners that lockdown has been relaxed a little bit in Wales. And I had the great pleasure and you had the even greater pleasure of meeting up with me in person last week, which was really nice. Obviously, it's been a long time since we've been able to meet due to, obviously, uh, coronavirus. So we met up in Butte Park in Cardiff, our local park, mm-hmm. socially distanced. Obviously, we kept our distance. Yes. Yes. I know it was Butte hard Park, for yes. you, Dan. I know it was hard for you to keep the social oh, distance. Oh, I have no idea. I was tempted. I really was. <laughs> but it was um, nice. You bought me a coffee from the Bucks, the Starbucks. Other coffee outlets are available, but it's been so long since I had a Starbucks. Um, And it was just nice seeing you in person and kind of having that sense of a little bit of normality back in our lives. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, you know, it was everything I wanted, everything I pictured, everything I've dreamed about. Just kind of me looking over the bridge at you. We were divided by the bridge, but we were together with our love for each other. And I was holding two very cold ice lattes that were, it was dripping a little bit. And I just saw you. And I, I did want to run and give you a hug. It was, it was it's awkward, isn't it? You can't hug anybody. But you know what? It was still lovely. Like you said, we had a lovely time. Butte Park is beautiful. I'm, I'm honestly convinced that a director's going to film, you know, Woody Allen or somebody. Maybe not Woody Allen. Oh. <laughs> Wrong Maybe time yes. to talk about Woody yeah. Allen. <laughs> Yeah, maybe not Woody Allen. Or like a rom-com director. They they need to film that. It is beautiful on a summer's day. Oh, gorgeous scenery and lots of people there. And it was great. We had a walk, we had a talk. And you're right. I think it's so important that you go and meet people and face-to-face because it makes a lot of difference, I think. 
Absolutely, and I can't wait to see you again. And I think things are going to be even more relaxed in the coming weeks. So that's that's going to be exciting. But what I'm more excited about, what I'm most excited about at the moment, it has to be said, is today's show. I think we've got mm. a hell of a strong show. We've outdone ourselves. We have. I've got to say, I think we have on this one without being cocky or, or too confident. Do you want to tell our lovely listeners what they've got to look forward to today, Dan? Oh, it would be my honour, Joseph. I think, may I say, it's the best content we've ever had. We've got two interviews today, but a man, we've got double whammy for you. We've got an interview with Matthew Lawton from the drive-in street food circus here in Cardiff, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit as part of our local news. That was really exciting. Great to talk to him. But most uh, excited about, we're going to be talking to the director of Dating Amber, David Frame, who is just a loveliest guy. I mean, he's Irish, so I, I love him already. Uh, we've both seen Dating Amber. We're going to review at the end of the show, but beautiful film. And yeah, just a really important thing to be talking about right now with everything going on. So it was great to chat to him, wasn't it? It, it really was. So without spoiling too much about the interview, the guy is just so articulate, so passionate, and looking back at his other work as well, he is definitely somebody to look out for. So I'm very excited for that as well. So moving on to the news segment of the show now, and we have some very local and very exciting news for you. It has been announced this summer the drive-in will be coming to Cardiff, hooray, as part of Street Food Circus. And we are lucky to be joined by the founder of Street Food Circus, Matthew Lawton, to tell us more about it. Matthew, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good to be on the show. No problem. Thank you for joining us, Matthew. Um, so for those who don't know a bit about Street Food Circus and kind of how it came to be, what, what can you tell us about it? So it started in 2014 when myself and my colleague Simon had come back from being away, really, and we were inspired by all the different street food markets that we'd encountered while travelling. Generally, if we'd gone somewhere or if I'd gone somewhere, the first thing that we check out would be the street food offer. What was happening in the market seemed to take the temperature of a town or a city. You could always get a feel for what that place was like. And we wanted to bring a bit of that excitement and energy back to Cardiff. So then in 2014, we started in a warehouse in on Dumbles Road that then became the depot. And then from there, we the year after, we launched it on John Street, which is where Street Food Circus was born, because it was behind the No Fit State Circus building. So we did it with No Fit State Circus. They had the circus on there, and then we had our food circus next door with traveling uh, street food traders and a big top in the middle for dining. And it was a really relaxed way of people coming together and eating. So you get people from all walks of life, all generations, all creeds. It was, you know, food is the great lever that, that brings people together. So that's what we celebrated and that's what we were excited about. And the ability then to grow a street food scene in Wales over the next four or five years, that scene boomed as it did across the UK, really. And we, we kind of come full circle to where where we are today and there's been lots of success stories of people that have started in street food like Hangfire Barbecue who are now on the TV and Dusty Knuckle Pizza who've got like three restaurants 
So there's lots of people that kind of start there and then that's their stepping stone into blossoming into a food career. So that's, yeah, that's Street Food Circus in a nutshell, really. And what gave you the idea to incorporate the drive-in movie experience into Street Food Circus this year? Well, cinema actually has always been quite a big passion of mine. So before like, I actually started putting on events and starting in events, uh, many, many, many moons ago, I went to um, International Film School Wales, which when it existed was in Newport. So cinema has always been a big part of, of my world personally. And we were going to do street food cinema without the drive-in model anyway. So our idea was to do big outdoor cinema screens and bring the street food traders in and it would be in different locations around Wales. That then diversified into driving model when lockdown hit all of our events for the rest of, you know, potentially for the rest of the summer and this year have been cancelled. The inability to be able to put on a, an event or a, a street food event meant we were looking at different avenues and looked at, could see that the driving model had worked in some countries that were kind of quite ahead of us in terms of the, the virus and coronavirus, like South Korea and America, where drive-ins are already happening on a regular basis, that they were, they'd seen a, an increase. And we were like, right, if we can bring together the street food element of what we do already and also the drive-in element together in Cardiff and and make it work then it was a bit of a no-brainer really. Oh brilliant and yeah I'm for one I'm so excited because like you said in America drive-in movie theatres are huge but I feel like here in UK and more in Wales it hasn't really picked up so uh, what what can you tell us about the experience and what kind of films will you be showing at the drive-in? As soon as our license is granted, we can get all of our films up online. So people, people will buy a ticket for their chosen film. Most likely we'll be doing one screening a day at around 7.30 p.m. You arrive at the Splot Market Complex, somebody will check your ticket and then you'll be put into eight rows outside the warehouse. The idea is a bit like when you're going to go on a ferry terminal. So before <laughs> you get on the ferry, you've got to get into the, the queue. So we'll queue everyone outside. You know, this is your kind of front of house experience. You're, you're sat in the cars waiting to go in. You can then tune into your radio into our frequency. So you'll be able to pick up an audio signal, which is where you'll pick up the audio from the film. But we'll have some pre-show content that will go on the radio. So immediately you're in the queue and you'll, you'll be probably be there for around 15 minutes. Then the roller shutters will go up on the sides of the warehouse. You'll be able to drive in. There'll be a bit of smoke, some lights and an experience. So we want to recreate the experience of event and our ushers will who will be dressed as ushers, will usher people into the rows situated in the 70,000 square foot warehouse. And then directly in front of you at the front, we've got theatrical uh, red drapes that drape the whole back wall. And then we've got a high definition 10 meter by five meter screen and a sound system in, inside to give you full kind of sound to the car as well as your trans your radio that can pick up the basic sound if you want to order some food from one of our street food traders which currently we have frank's hot dogs who do really good quality hot dogs they've got a stall in cardiff market at the moment we've got bearded taco who do mexican food and nachos and tacos and that kind of thing and we've got dirty bird fried chicken who um 
if you like fried chicken but you hate KFC, these people are the, the ones, you know. They're absolutely delicious. And as well as that, we'll have our giant sodas and popcorns. So if you want to order that, you get on the, the website or the app, put your side lights on on the car, and that then goes directly to the trader who will make your order. And then one of our servers brings it to the car and leaves it on the bonnet. And then you, you get out, get it and get back into, get it back into the car. And then the, the film experience will start. If a standard film's around 90 minutes, we expect the whole hour to kind of block, to block like two and a half, three hours, really. And have you selected the films that you're going to play yet? Or are they still top secret at the moment? I wouldn't say they are top secret. We've had a few arguments internally about which ones we should be <laughs> doing or not. And we have started to put out a few things on our social media to gauge interest on some of the classics. So we're, we're kind of gauging on what the feedback is from what we're putting out, the ones with the most kind of likes and shares we'll definitely put into the mix. In the pop-up, currently in the month, we'll have 32 screenings. So that's 32 different films. And there'll be a range of everything from family classics through to kind of horror nights. I'd like to screen Parasite, but I don't think there's, a, you know, it's whether we can fill the, the we, we are looking at different, we're looking at different audience groups because the cost of the ticket will be per car. So that'll be, there'll be 80 cars per screening if it's a full house. Right. Um, so you pay one cost. If you're in the front two seats, you've definitely got the best view. You know, so it's up to you then if you want to put more people into the back or you just want to keep it as two people in, in, in the front. But we will do some of the, you know, the big kind of classics like Back to the Future and, and Dirty Dancing and, and some of the crowd pleasers. But we are also going to screen things which are probably the kind of things that people wouldn't think of booking traditionally for a, a big, more commercial drive-in like American Graffiti and things which are, you know, that we feel would would work in that context. Well, you've that's definitely brilliant. got a, a extra vote for Parasite right here, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> so I would love to see that uh, at the drive-in. Yeah, brilliant. definitely. Um, and where can people go, uh, Matthew, um, for more information about the drive-in? Because it's all looking really exciting. So if you head to the website streetfoodcinema.co.uk, sign up there onto the mailing list, and you'll be the first ones to get the ticket registration link when we go live so we'll put it out through our email list first and then 24 hours later we'll put tickets on sale to the general public that is brilliant i literally cannot wait uh, people have got to make sure they go out and get their tickets matthew lawton from street food circus thank you so much for joining us um, and we can't wait to join in the driving experience thank you no problem thank you to you guys too have a great day Should we do some reviews, Joey? Let's do it. And I don't know about you, but I feel like this week we've been kind of spoilt a little bit because it does feel like even though these aren't in cinemas, it feels kind of like the type of films we may have seen in cinemas. And it's really exciting. So we're going to be firstly reviewing Disney's Artemis Fowl. And this is streaming on Disney+. Plus. We spoke about it a couple of shows ago, how this had production hell. It was pushed back. It was supposed to come out last August. Disney pushed it back and finally, rather than kind of waiting like they've done with Mulan or at least kind of making people pay for it like Trolls 2, they have just dropped it on streaming services Disney Plus, which is good for us because we don't have to pay like £16, which I was grateful for. This stars Ferdia Shaw. It's his first ever movie. <laughs> Enough said. 
and he plays Artemis Fowl. And Artemis Fowl, uh, his father, played by Colin Fowl, he is a criminal mastermind. His son is incredibly intelligent. He works at all the different puzzles and riddles. He's just very, very clever, outsmarts everybody. And basically, the story is Colin Farrell, his father, gets lost, he gets kidnapped. And basically, he was going to steal this kind of item of some sort. It never really fully gets explained. <laughs> um, and so Artemis has to team up with a society of fairies to find his missing father, to locate this item, and to bring peace to the fairy underworld. I hope I did it justice, but probably didn't. Uh, here's a little clip for you. And he always shared his discoveries with me. The only thing he kept private was his journal. Then that's what we have to find. I wouldn't know where to begin to look. Could your father have ever given you a clue as to where to start? He never told me how to start. But he may have told me how to end. End? Yeah. He read the same poem to me every night before bed, and every time he left. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rains fall soft upon your fields. Who wrote this poem, Arte? Nobody knows. That's just it. And how do you find it? It's known as the Irish Blessing. So I saw this, it came out very, very recently on Friday. Friday, June the 12th. First off, reviews had not been kind, is still not kind on it. And I've got to be honest, even though I was somebody who was like, yeah, not a good sign when Disney pushes the film back. I don't know, I kind of looked at the trailer and I was like, oh, it's Kenneth Branagh. You know, Kenneth Branagh is a talented guy. He directed Murder on the Orange Express, which I loved. I thought it was great. And, you know, he's, he's a great filmmaker. So I thought, oh, well, it's not going to be bad. I mean, it's just coincidence that Disney has done this. I don't want to kind of be smug, but I, I was kind of right. So um, obviously directed by Kenneth Branagh. You've got Ferdia Shaw as the leading title. Lara McDonnell in this. Josh Gad, who you know from A Dog's Journey. I'm going to cry. And uh, Frozen 1 and 2, of course, as Olaf. We've also got a great cast here. Judy Dench, straight from Cats, doing her thing. Love Judy. She thinks she's such the cutest woman. And Colin Farrell, like I said before, so a great cast in this. What could go wrong? Quite a few things, really. Um, so I'm going to come out and say, I don't think this film is as bad as people have been saying it is. It's aimed for a family audience. And I think you could do a lot worse just sitting your children in front of this. I think what's good about it, I think if you're five or six, and I think if you're 14 or 15, I think you can sit and find this quite watchable and quite amusing, to be honest with you. It's 90 minutes, it's really, really short, and for me, it flew by, I've got to be honest. And in a way, it's nice for me because I feel like Disney have done so many remakes in the past. It's quite refreshing to have original content. Obviously, this is adapted from the book series, but it's, it's good for me. I'm glad I'm not seeing like Lady and the Tramp or another remake. We've had so many of those last year, so it's refreshing to have this. For me, third year sure. I mean, I don't want to be horrible to the guy. It's his first ever film. Probably would be his last. That's all I'm going to say about that. The kids. <laughs> and I, I say this now because I'm not trying to be mean, but I uh, teach at a stage school. And I'm telling you, I could go to my seniors class, which are boys around 12, 13. I could close my eyes and pick one of the boys and they would do a 10 times better job. The kid, I don't know what it was about. I don't know if it was the direction. He has no charisma. He has no expression. He's so bland. And if he had a small role, if this was an indie film, I would not care. I'd be like, you know what? That's fine. But this is a really big Disney film. 
And I can just, I can think of so many, so many better young kid actors, you know, for him to, to play to play this role. I thought he was like fed lines at every scene. It just didn't come across as natural. And he, you know, kind of lazy for me. Like, I'm sorry, I don't think he really put much effort into this. And I know that's bad. I know he's young. I just, I hope that he's able to get another film, another opportunity. But he looks cool in a suit. I got to give him that. He's a cool <laughs> kid. Um, and it makes it worse when you have someone like Lara McDonald, who's actually really good. She plays one of the fairies. And actually, I kind of thought halfway through, maybe the film should have been about her because she's really good. She's much better than him. And she's also a young actress, but she's got that charisma. She's got the personality and she interacts with the rest of the cast much, much better than he does. Josh Gad, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. His narration was unbelievable. I didn't know what accent he was in halfway through the film. And you don't need it. It's so inconsistent, his narration. The guy's character, there's no really need for him. And I don't know why he was in there. And he detracts from Artemis Fowl himself, which he should be the star of the show, not just Gad. Um, I found his narration just so inconsistent and horrible. Judy Dench, I think, tries her best. I've got to say, I think she thought she was one of the better actors in this. Colin Fowl is barely in the movie, and the fact that we're supposed to believe that he's the father of Artemis Fowl when they have literally five minutes together at the start of the movie is ridiculous. We don't believe that they... There's no chemistry between them. We don't believe that Artemis Fowl, like, really cares about his father because it's not, it's not established well enough, to be honest with you. And that's the issue with me. My last point is you have in this film such really beautiful visual storytelling, especially when it came to the fairy world. I thought that was beautiful, and I was like, wow, this world is so great. Definitely can see where the budget went, but it does not spend enough time developing this fairy world. It spends way too much time in this Irish home, where basically the whole film set takes place. And I was just like, why is it taking place all in this home when you have such a, a really great kind of fairy universe that needs to be developed more? And for me, I would have rather the film be about that. Unfortunately, that pretty much the whole film takes place in the house. And what that does is it kind of, it, the film doesn't have a three-act structure. It feels like two acts. The, the third act doesn't come because it just such an anti-climax to it all. I think there are a lot of issues here. Like I said, I do think for me, I enjoyed the fact that it was refreshing. I don't think it's particularly Kenneth Branagh's fault. I think he had a vision. I think it's been botched in the editing room, hands down. If you look at the original teaser trailer, so many scenes have been cut from it. And some, some really, really nice looking scenes as well. And as a result, it's not the mess I was expecting. It's quite, it's, it's kind of a well-told story because they do keep it in this house. So you're not confused per se. But it's so safe. I mean, he, he, there's no ambition there. Uh, I think fans of the book series, I haven't read the books, but I think they will be really disappointed. I think it's a missed opportunity. I don't blame Kenneth Branagh for this. I think he's a great filmmaker. I think something happened in the post-production of it. Who I do blame, I blame some of the cast because I feel like they could have elevated the script, elevated the story, and they chose not to. And like I say, Judy Dench, stick to your cat routine, love, because this isn't working out for you. Um, yeah. So I'm sorry I, I waffled on there. But yeah, I think I liked it a bit more than you. I thought it was watchable. I think you can stick your kids in front of a TV. And for me, the fact that you don't have to pay £16 for it maybe softened the blow for me. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think critics come out saying, oh, it's the worst film of the year. I don't think that so much. I, I think it's watchable. But what did you make of it? Yeah, I, I, I can totally get where you're coming from. I think if you had had to pay... 1699 for this film i think you would be furious right now i do think that so you watched this yesterday 
you sent me your rating of it and I was shocked. I was shocked because I not only had I seen all the scathing reviews, I think like one star in the Telegraph, Guardian had kind of torn it to pieces. Not only had I seen all those awful reviews, but this should not be your type of movie on paper. You hate these kinds of fantasy fairies, like, oh, and then the goblins of the Goblin Kingdom came to the Flippity Floppity <laughs> Kingdom. You hate all that stuff. So I was even more shocked that, that you had a more balanced view on it. So, yes, yeah, so I was excited to watch it. You're right. I think you're a bit more forgiving of it than I am. I think it is a mess. I think it is a royal mess of a movie, a complete and utter mess. And I think that is, you're spot on, I think largely that kind of lies on the shoulders of the casting and the mm. casting department here. First of all, as you said, I was, I'm was. i so glad you didn't kind of hold back on your comments on Ferdia Shaw, because you, you don't want to be mean, you don't want to be nasty no. to like a young well, we're, actor. We're, not, we're, we're, we're being constructive, yeah. we're not saying, yeah. oh, he's rubbish, we know, we're, we're saying Well, that, we are, okay. he is rubbish, yeah, he is right, rubbish. <laughs> But you know what? I, like I said, this this is a big budget Disney film. You know what I mean? Like, if this was a smaller film, I wouldn't care so much. He probably got a really good paycheck for this. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I just think, like, moving forward, maybe he can take on his advice and kind of work on it. And I hope he does other stuff too. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. Like I said, hey, he looks good in a suit. So I don't think he'll be James Bond anytime soon. That's for sure. You're right. He has zero charisma. And from the second that he came on screen, I thought, you know, he, like you said, it's just like he's being fed lines. He just doesn't look like he wants to be there. I mean, come on, man. This is a big budget Disney film for your first film. Show some enthusiasm. And what's interesting was, is that basically I watched this with my better half. She has read the books. I haven't. And everything I was saying I was saying, oh, he, he's, he's awful as this actor, as Artemis Fowl. And she was basically giving me an insight into the book. So that was really handy as well, because she was saying in the book, Artemis is supposed to be sparky. You know, he's, mm. he's a criminal mastermind in the book and he's supposed yeah. to be very intelligent and sparky and he's got charisma. And it's just like the casting department have cast the completely wrong actor i'm sure he be, might be good in other stuff in the future but they cast the completely wrong actor for for this role you spot on with lara mcdonald i'd probably say she's probably the best thing about the film she should have been in it a lot more josh gad i mean my lord it was like first of all him and judy dench were having a how deep can your voice go contest <laughs> <laughs> like between him and Judy Dench, they're like, I cannot believe <laughs> that's yeah. what he talks like Artemis Fowl, Ar- <laughs> Artemis Fowl. And then you've got Judy Dench, who's like, Hey, hey, hey there, Josh Gad. It's like, <laughs> it's like they, they've got, they've got like they're having a competition who can do the deepest voice. Josh Gad's character is so annoying. Part of the problem with his character is that essentially his character only serves to tell the plot where, as you know full well, Dan, great films show they do not tell. Josh Gad is only there to tell the plot. Judy Dench, I've got to say, she is awful in this. I've got to say, I, I thought she was dreadful. To go from Cats to something like this, she's not having a good run, I've got to say, bless her. But my favourite part of the film 
is when she's like on the elf ship and the door opens and she just goes, top of the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Top of the morning. It's like, (laughs) it's so iconic. Well done, Judy. Like, she gets a point, Denise, for that. And yeah, I was just let down. Like, Kenneth Branagh, I know you don't think it's his fault, but, like, he's he's not unfamiliar to this type of fantasy stuff. He directed the first Thor movie in the MCU, you know? He brought Asgard to life. So he's well-versed in fantasy fare. I do think he's kind of dropped the ball here. Why it's set all within a home, I don't know. I don't know the budget of the movie, but it just felt like they'd run out of money. Oh, it's, it. it's a big budget, 125 million. So exactly. <laughs> so where did that... I can't see where that budget went. I thought it, the, that whole plot was essentially dragging out. You're spot on. It feels like a two-act movie. For me, it felt like a bit one-act movie. It felt like they dragged out a plot for an hour and a half, which could have easily been resolved within 35 minutes, and then stretched that out to a whole movie, only to set up a sequel, which, to be honest, I doubt we're going to get anyway now, because it's not been well-received at all. And, like, I checked. I couldn't believe, at the end, I couldn't believe that was it. I was like, we don't know who the main villain is. There's still Mm. lots of stuff to, like, kind of explore. And I can't believe it just kind of ended on such an anti-climatic way. So I do think it's a mess. I think maybe you'll find this audience. I know a lot of people have really taken against it. I think you're right. I think there have been far worse films this year. I did not give it a one star because I, I felt that would be unjust when they, you know, you've got films like The Wrong Missy and Last Days of American Crime. This isn't the worst film I've seen but at all this year. I just think it's a crushing disappointment and I'm really gutted and in terms of fans of the book as I said my better half is a fan she was really really let down by this so unfortunate I don't think we're going to get a sequel I see ghosts y'all I see ghosts what happens to all of us man have you seen them too yeah Dad, come to you at night. Huh? Storm and Norm comes to me down there every night. Now he talk to you like he talk to me. Come on. Come I don't on. think so. Come on. Fish off. Get in there, David. Get in there. Put your fist up, David. Come on. Go on, you too, Van. Go ahead. Fist up, man. Come on, Paul. Bloods! So, to Five Bloods, Spike Lee's first film on Netflix. Big fan of his work. He is vital at the moment. I think his work is especially. Black Klansman was his last film before this, which we saw in theatres back in 2018. I think it's safe to say we were both fans of that movie. I know it was in my top 10 of that year. You really enjoyed it as well, didn't you, Dan? I did, yeah, absolutely. What I actually did the day before The the Five Bloods was released, I watched Black Klansman to kind of remind myself of that movie. I'm glad I did because it essentially sets up The Five Bloods really well. There's a scene right at the beginning of Black Klansman 
where um, he's been interviewed for the job as a police officer and they ask him about his thoughts on the Vietnam War and they make a joke about Muhammad Ali kind of avoiding being drafted up for fighting in the Vietnam War. The Five Bloods actually starts with real footage of Muhammad Ali being interviewed about the Vietnam War and not wanting to go fight. You can easily watch Black Landsmen and you can watch this back to back. They complement each other really, really nicely. The Five Bloods is a unit in Vietnam War basically made up of five black people who become very close, obviously, through the Vietnam War. They find some gold. And they basically decide during the Vietnam War back in 1971 that they're going to bury this gold and they're going to return later on in life to find the gold, it's American gold, and basically use it, you, you know, however they please. Some of the members think it should be donated to important causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, things like that, whereas some uh, have just had enough of being ripped off in life that they want to kind of use it for themselves. So the film kind of jumps back and forth between 1971, where a horrible accident happens, which is haunting uh, one particular member of the Five Bloods, and jumps to the present day, where four of the Five Bloods return back to Vietnam to find the gold. This is definitely one of the best films of 2020 so far. And again, it just further cements why Spike Lee is one of the most kind of important and vital directors working today. He's, he's a filmmaker with great style. This film has bags and bags of style. And what I love especially over his last couple of films, how he's, he's introduced real life footage and documentary footage into his films more and more. So there are those moments all through the film where they'll reference an event or they'll reference a person and it will cut to footage of said event or it will cut to a picture of that real life person. Spike Lee is basically giving it's not just talking about these things. He wants to give these people, these black people who've lost their lives in horrific incidents, he wants to give these people a face on, the, on his film. And I really love that about his style. He just doesn't make offhand comments. He backs it up with pictures and images um, and footage. So I really love that he's putting more and more of that into his movies. He deals with these themes, like Black Lives Matters and things like that, very important very vital right now obviously with everything that's going on in the world but he packages them in a way where they are entertaining films to watch they are still thrilling films to watch and this film does have some great moments they mainly come from delroy lindo who is very big on social media at the moment because his performance oh my lord it is one of the best performances, certainly the best performance I've seen of 2020 so far, and one of the best performances I've seen in a long time. This is an actor who I have fond memories of from films that I watched in the 90s, but he's always on the kind of peripheral. He's never like, I can't remember seeing Delroy Lindo in like a, a, a main role before. I'm sure he has done big parts, but I can only remember him from films like Ransom. I've never seen him like this before. His performance is incredible. And I tell you, 
2021 award season needs to happen for this performance alone. He is outstanding and it's great to see people on Twitter and Facebook showing their support of his performance. It is a performance which is angry and like guttural. You can tell he's like kind of getting these emotions from deep within himself. He like spits, it's a performance of spit and like fire and rage. And he's not necessarily a likable character. His character is one who has had issues who's maybe been affected the most by the Vietnam War and suffers with PTSD massively. And that's affected every one of his relationships. And there's a kind of father-son story running through that. So he's not a nice character. What he plans to do with the money, he's selfish, he's mean to his son. But the performance is just so compelling and engaging you can't help but empathize with him a little and and kind of be on his side even when he kind of reaches peak craziness and there's a brilliant sequence where he's kind of walking through the jungle speaking to the camera and his eyes are kind of looking into his soul for like a whole five minutes it is a remarkable performance for that alone the film deserves your time. But it is a film which explores an interesting aspect of history in that black people have fought in World War II. You know, they fought in the Vietnam War. And there's an interesting statistic in the film where at the, uh, during the Vietnam War, 11% of America's population were black people and 33% of the people fighting in Vietnam were black people. So the proportion is so off. And it raises that question of why should black people be fighting in American wars when all they've got to go back to is racism and xenophobia and, you know, hate from white Americans. So it's, it's, a, it's a really compelling piece of filmmaking, as always, from Spike Lee. There are a few reservations. I think the pacing is a bit off. I think at times it's a little bit disjointed between the flashbacks and the flash forwards. And it doesn't have that kind of narrative drive. I think watching Black Klansman kind of showed me how great that movie is in just driving the narrative forward. It's relentless and it flies by. That's like two hours, 10 minutes, but it flies by. This film is two hours, 30. I do think there are moments which could have been cut and maybe reined in. It is a bit dense in some places. So I do have some issues or reservations about the the, uh, pacing of it. And it doesn't feel like whilst the message is equally as important as Black Klansman, I think it doesn't do as good a job as bringing that message to the present day as Black Klansman did, which obviously ended with like Trump rallies. You know, Black Klansman had that shocking footage of Trump's America and, you know, the violence on the streets and things like that. You know, really powerful ending. This doesn't do as good a job, I don't think, as connecting the two. That said, it is one of the best films of the year. You, like you said earlier on, we've been spoiled this week, you know, with three really solid cinematic movies. And Delroy Lindo, come, if there is an award season next year, you're going to hear his name said a lot. So I really loved it. Eddie shifted a girl today. Where it is, he didn't touch your tits, though. Jack! A guide to lovemaking. How come he didn't touch Tracy's boob? Jesus, Kev! Amber, what's for lunch? Carpet? Not today. 
Your mom's getting shampooed. Did you throw a rock at me? I'll go out with you. What? Do you want to go out or not? Okay. What, what the hell what are you doing? You're gay. I'm gay for boobs. I'm not gay. Yes, you are. So am I. We pretend to go out just until school is over. We're going to Dublin. You know, you can tell me anything, and I will love you no matter what. I know. Jesus, this must be what the inside of your gay brain looks like. And we're joined now by the director of Dating Amber. It's available now on Amazon Prime UK to stream. Please welcome to the show, David Frine. Uh, how are you today, David? I'm, I'm very good, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm good. We're kind of, you know, the Dating Amber's been out a week now, and it's just been a really overwhelming experience. There's been so much love and support for it online. So, um, yeah, I'm in a very good mood. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, we're so glad to have you uh, here. Thank you so much for doing this again. For those who haven't seen Dating Amber yet, and Joe and I are massive fans of it, and we're, we're so glad we're speaking to you about it, what can you tell us about the story and about the inspiration behind it as well? So Dating Amber is set in 95 in Ireland and it's about two gay teenagers, Edgy and Amber, who are sick of all the taunts and, and speculation about their sexuality so they decide to fake a relationship. From there they become really close friends and begin to build each other's confidence and explore their sexuality and, and, and their futures. So it's a, it's a kind of a comedy drama with a, with a lot of warmth. That's that's semi-autobiographical. <laughs> <laughs> David, your, your last film before this was yeah. The Cured, which yeah. was in 2017. That was very different. It's like a zombie horror, but kind of a drama as well with like political undertones. Was it always your intention to do something kind of completely different in the sense of obviously this is more of a kind of romantic kind of comedy? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, so The Cure definitely isn't semi-autobiographical. Uh, it's a very different film. But I, th I think like a lot of filmmakers and film lovers, you have a very wide taste and you like a lot of different genres. And I think as a filmmaker, you want to be able to explore lots of different genres and, and types of filmmaking. I always wanted to do comedy. I mean, I've, I've written a lot of comedy and done some short comedy work before. So it was really important for me that I did... Dating Amber as my second feature, just, and, and at one point it could have been my first feature. We tried getting funding for it a couple of years earlier and it just didn't happen at that point. So that, and, and The Cured happened instead, which was great. But I mean, I think it was always my intention to get this made because it is so personal. And I think when you do a horror film like The Cured, you end up getting offered a lot of horror films, which is lovely. It's a lovely position to be in, but it's quite frustrating that nobody's thinking of you for their comedies or period dramas so you know I think you have to make if you want to be able to do that stuff you have, kind of have to generate it yourself and do it yourself 
I think it's just important as a filmmaker to continue exploring all the different kind of facets and, and genres. Both of these films, on the surface, are very genre-based yeah. movies, but quite subversive in the view that you take with the genre. Is that important to you, to take a more kind of subversive view and something which we haven't seen before? I think so. I mean, for me, I just, I love films that are scary or thrilling or really funny. And I think you know, they, they, become, they become really easy ways to then say something political or social it's just wanting to if you're making a horror film you want it to be scary if you're making a comedy you want it to be really funny and laugh out loud and it is it really it's a nice trojan horsey kind of way of bringing in a message or bringing in a theme you know and i just it's just the films i love to watch and so they're the ones i love to make i like not mainstream cinema but i like just broadly intuitively emotive funny things i mean i don't want people watching dating amber for instance on like some sort of academic intellectual level. You want them to cry and laugh. You don't want them to be like analyzing it in a higher way. I mean, you know, that's not to denigrate it. I think it's just like for me, the best films are really emotional films and they're instinctive reactions. And I think that's what you get when you're watching a horror film or a comedy. It's an instinctive reaction that is the best kind of cinema reaction. Well, I, I definitely was emotional during, during uh, Dating Amber. I had a little cry at the end, but there we are. That's all about. Yeah. Um, so Dating Amber has a phenomenal cast. You've got Fiona O'Shea, Lola Pettigrew, who are so talented. I can't wait to see where their careers go from this. Uh, also Sharon Horgan, who we love. What was the casting process like? How much involvement did you have in bringing the characters to life? It was a long process. I mean, as casting is, I mean, I loved the casting process. So... Sharon Horgan was the first person to come on board, which was insane. She kind of, my agent knew I wrote the role for her. So she sent her agent the script like a week after I finished it. And a week later, I was having a coffee with Sharon in Soho. And she was like, I love it, I'll do it. Which, which was like a year before we even shot it. And we still had development work on the script to do. And you kind of always think that person, it's, it's a nice boost to your confidence, but invariably there'll be a conflict in scheduling and they won't be able to do it. But thankfully she always stuck with us and she was amazingly supportive. And then the big anxiety was finding the right kids. You know, the film really sits on the shoulders of Fiona Lola. So we did a really wide casting in Ireland and England with um, an amazing casting director, Louise Kiley, and got loads and loads of tapes and loads of brilliant actors. But Fiona Lola's tapes just really stood out. And then we whittled that down to four actors per role and did kind of chemistry reads with them all in kind of just bringing them in two by two and once we saw Fiona and Lola together it was just lightning in a bottle they were extraordinary and I knew we had found our Eddie and Amber but you, the film works if you buy their friendship and they've become such close friends they're in isolation together they're like inseparable and they were like that from day one we had like six months of rehearsals before we shot the film where they could build that friendship and bond so we were starting the film with people who were already best friends, which was amazing um, kind of privilege for us all. And I think it makes the film what it is. I don't think you, the film would be a fraction of what it is without that, without knowing that bond is real. So then from that casting, I mean, all the other roles are so, so vital and all those secondary roles could, could land so badly if they weren't in the hands of really funny actors. And from the wide casting we did for Eddie and Amber, there was all these other great actors like Emma Willis and Anastasia Blake and Ina Riley who, who weren't necessarily 
right for Eddie and Amber, but we wanted in the film and we knew they'd be great. So they became the cast around them. So they became her girlfriend, Sarah, and Tracy and Janet in, in, in the schoolyard and Kev, the kind of the charming bully. So from that kind of casting of Eddie and Amber, we found all the other kids as well, which was great. So it was a long, but really fun casting. I mean, it's different for an actor, which I'm sure it's, it's a nightmare casting process, but as a director, you're just watching talent after talent, even though you're only choosing one. So it's always a joy. And definitely worthwhile because each individual cast member is fantastic, even the supporting cast. I can't remember a film in a long time where I which I watch and thought each individual character is so memorable in it. It was really important for us that each of those secondary actors had their scene-stealing moments and that they felt like they weren't just a stereotype. And I think that's because of how brilliant those actors are that they... They, they did that, you know, I think some of the best one-liners in the film come from those guys. And I think there was a huge generosity on set and a huge camaraderie between the whole ensemble that no, everyone would give those actors their moments, which is great. I mean, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm currently beginning my campaign for a Tracy and Janet spin-off TV series because I just <laughs> love those actors so much. And I really, I think there's so much, you know, you can write really funny characters and roles, but then the actors bring so much more to it. And I think they brought such a, three-dimensionality to those actors that I never, to those roles that I never anticipated. And so I'd love the opportunity to kind of bring that further and work with them again. We're at a time now where representation is so important in yeah. film. Can I just ask where you think personally the industry is currently at in telling these kind of um, LGBTQ uh, stories, uh, such as the one in Dating Amber, and did you have any personal difficulties in kind of getting this made, for example? I guess bluntly, I think the industry has a really long way to go. I think there's a lot of wonderful lip service being made by, by producers and financiers and, and, and you know, studios about diversity. But I think across the board, they're failing. You know, there's been some really amazing uh, queer films in the last couple of years, like Gods and Country and Mafia and, you know, the amazing um, portrait of A Lady on Fire, which I guess have more hopeful endings than you're, we're used to. But we still see a very specific type of queer film being made, which is kind of Oscar Beatty, A-list star-led tragedies. What I think is really important and what was really important with Dating Amber is that we see this coming out experience, but we see it framed within a kind of heartwarming comedy that we usually don't see it in. I grew up only seeing myself dying of AIDS or being persecuted, and it's such a bleak future if that's all you see. So seeing something with a hopeful ending that was kind of really just funny and that has a broad appeal beyond just a queer audience and, and it's not ghettoized in that way was really really important to me and I think it's really important that that the industry as a, as a whole begin to open up to the fact that audiences are smarter and better and kinder than we think they are and the straight audience can enjoy this too and that we need to see you know gay leads in horror films and, and comedies and not just in some sort of gay genre of its own that they've put it in that doesn't that shouldn't exist and that goes across the board with all levels of diversity that we, we we're so used to a very specific type of of representation and um, that needs to change and i think that what's really important is we start getting more diversity in decision makers because i think what you what you see is very lovely lip service from very white straight boardrooms and i think what we need is is decision makers in those rooms that can that can champion those voices and those stories but you know there has been some really amazing queer films made in the last couple of years 
that I think are beginning to break the mold of what you would expect. I mean, God and Country, for instance, has such a hopeful ending, which you wouldn't expect from that story. And I loved it for that and how personal it was to the director, Francis Lee. And I, I think those are, are kind of new to, to queer audiences. Absolutely. And you've gone down, obviously, uh, the zombie horror route. You've gone down uh, the heartwarming comedy about LGBTQ. What's next uh, for you in your career now? Is there a particular genre you want to kind of jump into? Everything. I've just written a big epic kind of fantasy action thing, which I love, which we're going to try assemble soon, set in America. I'm currently in isolation writing a revenge comedy set in England that I love. So I'd like to make both those. There's a couple of period dramas I'd love to adapt. I'm working on a TV project that I can't announce yet, but that, you know, is, is different again. So I think it's, it's just wanting to hopefully have the opportunity to continue to play with different genres and, and, and be given different opportunities. And I would love to do something that's, I mean, Dating Amber is period, it's the 90s, but more period, like earlier, <laughs> um, would be really fun. And I grew up in comic books. So, I mean, there's not much less left to do with comics, but I mean, I'd, I'd love them. So if those opportunities came as well, I'd be open to it. So it's just about wanting to continue to subvert expectations of who you are as a filmmaker and continue to push yourself as a filmmaker. Before we go, David, we do appreciate your time today. We were hoping you could answer an ongoing debate, which is referenced in your film as well. Um, yes. Bl blur or Oasis? I mean, it's not a debate, it's Blur. <laughs> Blur. Uh, yeah, blurred. It's such better music. It's better music. It's less machismo. It's just better. I was never a fan of Oasis. The people I was scared of in school were the guys who were walking wide legged to Oasis. So it's always blurred. I mean, I like one of my, my one of my best friends is such a blurred nut. He even made us go to Damon Albarn's Monkey Opera in the O2 in London. So um, we're diehard Blur fans. Well, thank you again, David Fry. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, best of luck with the movie. Dating Amber is out now on Amazon Prime UK. Please go and watch it. It's one of the best films of the year, hands down, and a really important film. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. That's great. What a lovely, lovely guy. You know, we, we, we've done a couple of interviews during the shows, past episodes. He was an absolute pleasure to work with. I was so nervous beforehand, I don't know why, because obviously um, you had seen his previous film, The Cured. We both watched Dating Amber beforehand. Such a talented filmmaker. He's got such a long career ahead of him. And that makes it worse. It puts more pressure on you, doesn't it? But he was great. He was wearing shorts, which I loved. Had a cup of tea in his hands. Super, super down to earth and chill. But yeah, great, great guy. Yeah, really, really great. These filmmakers, they don't need to take the time out of their day to kind of speak to us. You know, we're a fairly new show. We've been running since January. We've been lucky enough to interview people like David Creed in the past who made Sacrilege. And yeah, we, you know, we reach out to these directors and we hope for the best. And, you know, a lot of the time we might not hear anything back because they're too busy or ever. But to have somebody who's clearly so passionate about his film and wants to talk about it, it was lovely for him to just take the time out of his busy day. Clearly, you know, he had a lot on to spend 10, 15 minutes talking to us. So really lovely of him to do that. But Dan, what did you think of Dating Amber? Obviously, David explained a bit of the plot there in the interview. Do you want to elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, it's a pretty simple concept, isn't it? It's about uh, Fiona Shea, who uh, he was in Normal People. I've not seen Normal People, but apparently it's really good. And he plays a young lad. Um, his father is the army general. 
His mother's played by Sharon Horgan, who we love. She's great. We love Sharon Horgan. Oh, Sharon, she come on so... the show, girl. Come on yes, the show. Yes, please. And yes, she's, she's, she's kind of hot, you know? Like, she's kind <laughs> of hot. Anyway, I, I mean, I wouldn't object if she's my mum. That's what I'm going to say. So, um, Fiona Shape is a young lad. He's in the closet. He's gay. He tries so hard to oppress his gayness and his homosexuality. He, he tries to have a girlfriend. Doesn't quite work out. Um, he meets his fellow friend, played by Lola Pettigrew, who is a lesbian. And they find that they are facing a lot of insults uh, in the school they are. They, they go to a Catholic school, so there's a lot of judgment there, a lot of discrimination, especially the fact that it's set in 1990s Northern Ireland, which is kind of the worst place you could possibly be, uh, you know, to be uh, homosexual at that time. Um, so they decide to meet up and they basically pretend to have a straight relationship. So they pretend to go out with each other just to get through the rest of school. And then it's interesting kind of as they're doing that, they find, you know, they start to get comfortable with their sexuality. They start to go to Dublin and they start to go to different gay clubs and uh, drag queen scenes. And then what you find is Lola Petrico's character actually starts to feel more confident in actually, you know, being who she is, whereas Fiona Shea is not quite um, up to that. I think this is just a beautiful film. I think it's got such a great message. We spoke earlier on with everything going on right now, politically. I felt the LGBTQ movement, that group, I feel like they're kind of being ignored a little bit. I feel like, you know, it's Pride Month this month, and I can't think of a better film to educate people, you know, to to inform people about it. Because I still think there's a lot we can all learn. And I think cinema is a great way of communicating that. I loved Love, Simon. It was such an awakening to me because I remember we saw it in like a, it was like a, a secret screen and we had no idea what was shown. And there were people that actually walked out. And I think, you know, we've got to start kind of pushing ourselves with these films because just, they are just such beautifully told stories, really emotional, really deep. Uh, you know, it's not just about LGBTQ. Um, it's about so many other things. It's about discrimination. It's about judgment. It's about kind of society and how hard it is for a young person growing up, especially, like I said, in Northern Ireland, which is oh, so traditional, really strict. Um, there's a great scene where Lona Petrick is walking down the street and um, she just kind of come out. And these two old couple who kind of say they're Helm Harry's to her, you know, but it sounds ridiculous. But that's kind of what it was back then. And it's really great that we've come so far with it. David Frame, he's such a talent behind the camera. He has such a way of telling stories and, and getting you to emotionally connect to the characters. Not only that, but I think the cinematography is beautiful for a film that's his second film. It doesn't have a huge budget. It kind of says to a lot of budding filmmakers, come on, guys, like you can make it up to this standard. Um, the cast are great. I love Sharon Horgan as kind of the supportive mother. The only thing I would have liked to see, just that scene at the end between her and Fiona Shea, just kind of, she sits down in his bed, she says, um, son, it's okay, you know, because I think she kind of discovers, I would have just loved that. But in a way, it works with the setting of the film because I think Fiona Shea is just so in his head, he's just pushing towards being straight because um, he thinks that's the only way. So that was really bittersweet. I think these two leads are really, you've got to look out for them. They're two really talented young actors and we've got a long, long career ahead of them. And yeah, I, I just thought it was a beautifully told story uh, with a really positive message and loved it. It's 90 minutes. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to get as much um, recognition as something maybe like Artemis Fowl, but this is a really important film. Go and watch it, because honestly, it's really, really something, uh, something to recommend. With everything that's going on at the moment out there, like you said yourself, this is the film we all kind of needed right now, I think. It's something which is, which is dealing with 
Um, still topical subject matter, still very important subject matter. But um, as David said himself in, in the interview, he's framed it in within this kind of really heartwarming, often hilarious script, which will kind of leave you smiling, but with tears in your eyes as well. Like you said, you know, you cried in it. I cried in it. I thought the ending was incredibly powerful. You know, it deals with really tough subject matter as well, like suicide as well, which I really kind of appreciated within the within the film and kind of mental health and that kind of whole relationship between uh, the two lead characters. I thought the way that developed to that bittersweet ending, I just thought was so like real and authentic and I bought it 100%. We mentioned earlier on with Artemis Fowl, casting how important it is and obviously we talked to David about how important the casting was here and the cast just across the board are phen phenomenal you know uh, Fiona Shea and Lola you completely buy their relationship from the get-go the chemistry is there the spark is there so it was really nice to hear David say like that was natural from the get-go and that they're even such good friends that they're even isolating together now you know they're so you know they're in lockdown together I think you can really feel that through the film Sharon Horgan obviously we've talked about um before she is Fantastic. I've loved her. I think I first kind of saw her in Catastrophe with Rob Delaney, who, who I love as well. She's fa fantastic in that. Not just a great actress, but great writer, director, very heavily involved in producing films. Um, so, you know, she's fabulous. Then you've got those kind of side characters like Ian O'Reilly and Emma Willis, all these different characters, like the brother. I, I just thought the brother was hilarious in the film. He has some great one-liners. David's absolutely right. The kind of one-liners are spread that across the board here. So it has been a long time since I've seen a cast as strong as this and kind of thought each person had their individual moment. And, and that's why the film works so well, I think, is because the cast are tremendous, but then you've got David's writing. And I'm not just saying this because we've had him on the show or, or anything like that, but um, as I said in the interview, I watched The Cured before um, the interview. That is another really fascinating kind of high concept Irish zombie film which I thought was tremendous and then to follow it up with something like Dating Amber I honestly think he's going to be one to watch for the future clearly he's got a lot of projects on the go fantasy stuff revenge comedies he's got a lot on the go at the moment so I'm really fascinated to see where his career goes for me it just ticks all the boxes it is lovely like I said it's a beautiful film about love about how love takes many different forms as the film progresses and their relationship develops and and you know the two do fall in love in their own way so it is a kind of romantic comedy because they do fall in love in their own way and i think it is a film about the many forms love can take and i i think that's a really beautiful moment um in the film so i think it is perfect viewing for the times that we live in at the moment especially with with um, pride month at the moment it is funny it is heartwarming and as i said it is it, it is emotional and it will leave, leave you with a tear in your eye as well at the end so 
it's free for people who've got an Amazon Prime membership at the moment as well. So you're not even having to pay $16.99. And to be honest, if I had had to pay $16.99, I would have left thinking, you know what, that was justified because I think it, it just, you know, I would have gladly paid to see that on the big screen. But for those who have got Amazon Prime, it is free of charge. You've got no excuse. Go and watch it because like you said yourself earlier on, again, it is one of the year's best films, I think. Definitely, I vouch for that too. And yeah, thank you again uh, to the uh, David Frayne for uh, the fantastic interview. Like I said, we, we know he had a busy, busy schedule and we look forward to seeing what else he does in the future. Thank you again to Matthew Lawton, our other guest on today's show. Don't forget to go and check out the drive-in movie theatre with Street Food Circus. And that's kind of all we've got time for on today's show. It's been, it's been a cracker of a wedding, Joe, isn't it? We've, we've, had a, we've had something for everybody, haven't we? <laughs> we have. And um, I've, I've just feel pressure now. We've got to top this, Dan. You know, we've got to go bigger and bigger and bigger with each episode from here so uh pressure's on now lad absolutely i mean yeah you know what they say when they go low we go high you know what i'm saying <laughs> like uh as obama said back in the day yeah so um i definitely think we need to we need to we've got big shoes to fill now we need to get we need to get the the cage come on we need to get this cage yes. next time and don't forget you can listen to all our old episodes of the danjo film show on our mixed cloud page uh, we're also on spotify iTunes and you can listen to our individual reviews of the show on YouTube as well and don't forget to follow us on social media uh, we're on Facebook Twitter and Instagram in Twitter and Instagram we're at DJ Film Show so go give us a follow thank you so much for listening we'll see you next episode where we're going to have a, a, a yearly review we're going to look back at some of the best and worst movies of this year so far definitely were not to miss so look out for that um, and we'll see you very very soon thanks for listening and goodbye Bye-bye.